0: But as you take God's Word into your hands and turn to the book of Malachi, turn to the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, and we find uh, the four-chapter book of, uh, of Malachi. We've been in Malachi for uh, now the last ten weeks, and we're uh, about two-thirds of the way through our series speaking about an ancient truth for modern times. And we've been noticing how this book that was written more than 2,500 years ago has some great application for us in the year 2008. Now we've been looking at what God declares in the book of Malachi, and just as a form of a way of review, we see God is displeased with his people. While he starts out speaking of his love for the people of Israel, he quickly moves to speak of his displeasure with his people. And in chapter two, he's especially displeased with the priests, the ones who are to, uh, make their effort and to make their life one that pursues God and pleases God. And yet Malachi through, uh, God, or God through Malachi speaks that they have defied God. They have defiled themselves and they have destroyed relationships with one another. The people of God had grown weary in their service to their king and to their God. And as a result of that, they begin to start acting and asking sarcastic questions towards God. They say, why does God bless evildoers? Why is it that God is not quick to judge those who have done wrong? In fact, they say that he delights in the wicked That he is not the pure God that God had uh, spoken of himself in that way. But now he, in some way, the people said, have turned a blind eye to what evil is going on. And as a result of that, God responds. And last week we saw what God's response was. He doesn't sit idly by, uh, just sitting there going, well, that's how the people feel about me, that's fine. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm coming, and I'm coming to judge. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for my coming? And there's two types of coming that are going to take place. At my coming, there'll be those who will be purified. Those who love me, those who have followed me, while they're still not perfect, while they still have sin to be taken care of, I will come and I'll be a refiner. I'll be a launderer, it says in chapter three. I will come and clean them up and make them a people unto myself. But then he also says those who involve themselves in sin, who do not follow my ways, who rebel against my lordship and my being their God. For those, there's going to be judgment and there's going to be pain and suffering and eternal punishment that will come. So we go on from this text of chapter 3 into verse 6 and verse 7. And that's where I want to look at this morning. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word we'll get into uh we're going to start in uh, chapter 2 verse 17 of Malachi and go through verse 7 of chapter 3 let me read this for us you have wearied the lord with your words how have we wearied him you ask by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the lord and he is pleased with them you also ask where is the god of justice see i will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice." But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's our text for the morning. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and your book this morning. And Lord, I pray that there would be a soberness as we come before you this morning, as we've spent time around your table, remembering the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that that same spirit will move into this time of teaching that not only will we remember what your Son has done, but we will remember God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And within your character and in within your nature, you have something to teach us this morning about yourself. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a people who desire to know as much as we can about our great God in heaven. That the characteristics and the attributes of, of who you are and what you're about would never bore us that they would never fall on deaf ears, but that your people would respond with great excitement and great fervor as we do with our spouses and and those we love, that we would desire to know all we can about you and sit with open ears desiring to learn just yet again another truth about your greatness and your power and your dominion that is not only seen today, but is seen throughout all generations. So Lord, open our hearts. Give us minds and hearts that are ready to respond to what your word has to say. And that, Father, we would be ready to return to you. That if we have fallen away or if we've never come to you, that today would be the day that we return to you, return to our God and return to the one who can give us eternal life. So Lord, I pray that uh, these next minutes will be pleasing to you, that you will be brought glory and honor, and that the people of God will be ready to purify themselves through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that in turn, we may bring glory and honor as we live this life for you and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Today in our text, the key word that we see is the word change. The word change. Note to self, never open up a bottle of water on a music stand when it's half tilted. I just baptized my Bible. All right, the word change. You know, change is a uh, word that we see a lot in our day and age. We see change in everything. Every day we wake up and something has changed, whether it's the weather Whether it's our feeling as we wake up, whether it's the news that we turn on or open in the newspapers, it seems that our world is forever and constantly changing. We as people find ourselves changing. We see ourselves in relationships that are continually changing. We find ourselves each a new day finding new opportunities, which of course bring forth change. We know that as people, our bodies are continually changing. I thought of uh, the Brady Bunch, when Peter Brady's a part of the singing Bradys and he sings about the time to change. It's a changing time in our world. It seems that it many times changes faster than we would want it to be. The reason many times this happens is because our technology and our pursuit for new things continues to drive us faster many times than we would ever want to go. I'm told that as soon as you buy a computer from Best Buy or Circuit City or any of those stores, that it is already out of date. Why? Because technology in the computer field is constantly changing. It is evolving. We see that in, in our world as seasons change. We see that as uh, the, the world and all its meteorological it, uh, changes take place, that the world is constantly in motion, never settled at where it's at, but it's constantly moving and interacting with other parts of creation as it changes from one thing to another. We live in a world of change. We are people of change. Growing up, I listened to a rock group that had a, a, uh, a ballad that spoke of these words, change, now it's time for change. Nothing stays the same, now it's time for change. Now is change always a good thing? It seems that in our uh, world today that change is very popular. Even the politicians and the pundits are striking on this word change. We have one presidential candidate who is the candidate of change. But is change always a good thing? Now, I want you to sever that from the political end of things. Is change always a good thing? Are there some things that are good that just stay the same? Many of you went to family reunions this weekend, I heard. And many of you went to picnics. And many of you go to these things looking forward to that same unchanging recipe of potato salad or apple pie you don't want it to change we remember when coca-cola came out with the new coke and we all struggled with that they said because it didn't stay very long we wanted the old stuff the stuff that hadn't changed change isn't always a good thing just because something changes doesn't mean it's always changed for the better So here we see God speaking about change. And he doesn't say, I'm changing, I'm evolving. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. What are we to do with that? What are we to understand about our Lord and our Savior when God announces that in a world that everything changes, he is constant, he is the same, he is unchanging in who he is and how he responds and acts with his creation. It's amazing as we look at this book that we see God speak of not changing and yet we see a people who found themselves changing all the time. The book of Malachi is about a people who had turned away from God. They had changed from their pursuit of God to pursue other things. They found themselves changing the way that they were supposed to do worship and offerings to do it their way. And so in this book of changes where people find themselves seeking out something different, a change in their walk with God, God comes in and in chapter 3 says, I do not change. I don't change. Now, theologians use this term not unchanging as much as the word immutability. Immutability, I can say it, I can't spell it. Immutability, and what that is, is it's a big word that is defined this way. It'll go on the screen so you can write this down. Immutability means that God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Let me stop there. He is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises, meaning he stays the same. We know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because the book of Hebrews speaks that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what a testimony of uh, uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, being God because he does just like his Father does not change. Now notice what goes on. If you want to know where this definition came from, it came from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He goes on, and I'm going to try to address each of these things as we talk about this. While he's unchanging in all those things, God does act and feel emotions. So we need to understand is God is not this, this being out there in the celestial clouds who has no concern for the world, who has no emotion. He doesn't show anything because he's unchanging. And if we have emotions... Uh, isn't that a change? We go from loving and, and hating. We go from pursuing uh, one direction compared to another. God feels emotions. We're gonna talk about that. And then the important thing is, is that he acts and feels differently in his response to certain situations. So what that means is God is unchanging, but the way he acts and responds is according to his, if you will, god prerogative he does things the way he wants to do them and he does them based on the emotions that he has when we exude, uh, exude the emotions that we have happiness and anger and frustration and joy and sadness we are showing our um, uh, image bearing attributes of god god is an emotional god we are an emotional people And yet God does that without changing his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. I want to address each of those for you this morning. But before I do, I want to read a quote from one of my favorite pastors named Charles Haddon Spurgeon when he speaks about studying something like this in the character of God. He says, For the Christian, there is to be a proper study of God. For the believer, it is the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God. For it is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom that Christian calls his father. Now there is something exceedingly improving to the mind of the Christian when he contemplates God. It is a subject so vast that we cannot compass and grapple with. I'm sorry, let me redo that. It is a subject so vast that we can, um, let's see here, we with all our thoughts are lost in the immensity so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Now, other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them, we have a, so, a sort of uh, self-content and we go on with the thought that behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, the study of God, we find difficulty finding our plumb line because we cannot sound its depth. Our eagle eye cannot see its height. And we turn away with the thought that a vain man would think that he is wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, he says, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. There is no subject that will humble the mind and the thoughts of God. In the pursuit of this study, we as a people, his children are to announce, Great God, how infinite are thou, what worthless worms are we. When we pursue the study of God, we should not be bored with it, but we should grapple with it and try to understand it, knowing we never will, but praising God, saying how infinite you are, how amazing you are, God, and how worthless we as humans are. So what do we see? In verse 6, he speaks about his immutability. And this immutability involves three things this morning. First of all, it involves God's character. Write that down. It involves God's character. The text says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. The Lord is speaking here. Jehovah God is articulating that he is an unchanging God. We must explore this. We must pursue this. We have to ask the question, what does it mean and how does it affect me as a believer? What should my response be to it? What does it involve? And we're gonna look at what it involves beginning in our outline today. There are four things that I wanna look at. They're not the only four things that involve God's unchanging nature or his immutability, but it's a start. So let's look at the first one. First of all, God is unchanging in his perfection. God is unchanging in his perfection. Simply put, God is perfect. Can I get an amen for that? God is perfect. God is free from any moral or structural defect. Now, we don't know all that makes up God. In fact, God only reveals a small amount of himself because he knows the finite nature of our mind. But we know that while we don't know all about God, we can know what he has declared to us about himself. And we need to understand that God has revealed in Matthew 5, 28, that your father in heaven is, is perfect not good not great not almost there but he is a plus with a million pluses after that completely perfect in his nature the book of James uh, chapter 1 verse 17 I'll have you turn there for a moment James 1 verse 17 if you're in the book of Malachi go to your right to the end of the New Testament And you'll find the book of James. We were in the book of Hebrews before. And James comes right after the book of Hebrews. And James shares something to us about the nature of God. It says, don't be deceived in verse 16, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights... Who does not change like shifting shadows. And what that means is, is that there's no variation with God. He's perfect. He doesn't need to change. If, if he's perfect, then this is the first argument on why God must be an unchanging God. Because if he is unchanging because he's perfect, then it means that he should never have to change. If God said, I'm going to change, it would then bring into question whether he was perfect in the beginning. Now, the other thing is, is if he's perfect, that means he can't, first of all, get any better. If God was to uh, share with us from the heavens today, hey, I found something that improves me as God, then he would have ceased to have been God and he would have lied all these years because he was not perfect, because there was something that could have been added to his nature. Nothing like that can happen. He's perfect. If he wasn't perfect, then he could change for the bad or the good. And we know that God is completely holy that he can't follow after sin, that he can't uh, be tempted with sin because he's set apart as a result of that. And we must remember that in God's perfection, it allows him to be unchanging. The second thing we see this morning is in his personhood, his personhood. What about his attributes and his character? We need to understand that they too do not change. The character and attributes of God, none of them ever change. Let's talk about that for a moment. The Bible says that God's love is eternal and it is unchanging, it's unfaltering. He speaks to his people and says, "I will love you with an everlasting love. It's never going to change. It's eternal. It's everlasting." And we know that of all his attributes and characters, God is unchanging in his justice. God is unchanging in his righteousness. God is unchanging in his grace. He is unchanging in his mercy. He is completely unchanging in his patience. God will and always will be uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. All of God is perfect, not just parts of it. God has not changed. Now, one of the big uh, debates that comes up is the question of when Christ uh, came down to earth and was found to be uh, in the form of a man, did God's essence change? Because of Jesus Christ coming down and being united with flesh, did he change? I love what Spurgeon says in regards to this. Christ's essence did not undergo a change when it became united with the manhood. When Christ in past years did gird himself with mortal clay, the essence of his divinity was not changed. Flesh did not become God, nor did God become flesh by a real actual change of nature. The two were united in what we call a hypostatical union, but the Godhead was still the same. It was the same when he was a babe in the manger. And it was the same when he stretched out the curtains of heaven in the beginning of time. It was the same God that hung upon the cross and whose blood flowed down in a purple river. The self same God that holds that same world together upon his everlasting shoulders and bears in his hands, the keys of death and hell. God has never changed in essence, not even by his incarnation, but he remains everlastingly, eternally the one unchanging God. We change. We make decisions. We go one direction over another. We say, you know what? We're gonna turn and we're gonna go that same direction. We change in our thoughts, but God does not. Now, scripture is clear about this. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah for a moment. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Notice what God says through the prophet. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says israel's king and redeemer the lord almighty listen to what he says i am the first i am the last and apart from me there is no god i want you to turn for a moment to the book of psalms if you're in the book of isaiah go back about three or four books to the book of psalms we're gonna look at psalm 102 psalm 102 verse 25 through 27 Psalm 102 verse starting in verse 25. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But listen to what the psalmist says. But you remain the same and your years will never End. let me stop there when we talk about the personhood of God we must understand uh, I was talking with an individual today and he was saying he had just celebrated his birthday a week ago and he says I'm getting to the age I don't look forward to getting up God isn't that way God doesn't have wrinkles on his um, uh, face God doesn't find himself uh, with arthritis of the hands He doesn't say to the Holy Spirit, you know what? My back is hurting right now, holding all the galaxies in their place. God does not age. God does not grow old. He is unchanging. From the beginning of time, when he set everything in motion, he has not changed one bit of his nature or his perfection or his uh, personhood. He does not grow weary. He does not worry about passing away that is so far from his thinking because he is eternal and he is the unchanging God. Now let's move to the next one. When we understand that, we must also see that he is um, unchanging in his promises. He's unchanging in his promises. Now scripture declares that God's word does not change. If you're in the book of Psalm again, just turn to Psalm 119 for a moment. Let me just read that quickly for us. Psalm 119. We look at uh, verse 89 through 96. Psalm 119, 89 through 96. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day. For all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your uh, statutes. To all perfection I see a limit. But listen to what he says. But your commands are boundless. Not only are they eternal, the words of God, but they are boundless. And we need to understand that in God's promises because of his perfection and because of his personhood that he does not change, his word does not change. So that when he announces something, we need to listen. We need to understand what he's saying. I want you to notice uh, for a moment, uh, uh, just listen to Numbers 23, Numbers 23, verses uh, nineteen, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. Listen to what it says. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? When God says something, you can bank on it. When God says that something's going to happen, it is going to happen. When God says that judgment is going to come, it's going to come. He promises that to be true. Now we look at uh, two ways that that can happen in the book of Deuteronomy. Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy at the beginning of the Bible, fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're laying a foundation here, so stick with me in this theological understanding of what we're talking about, the immutability of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verse 9 and 10. Speaking of God's promises being unchanging. Now therefore, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. Now listen to what happens. Keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands let's stop there for a moment the first person that should just uh, fall in love with God's unchanging nature is the believer because the Bible says that God is faithful not to just the people in the Old Testament but he's completely faithful to us today and he's going to keep his promises he's a promise keeper And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to minister to you. All of those promises, some 7,000 promises in Scripture are given, and they are ones that we can bank on. But notice what Moses says after that. He says he keeps his promise to the faithful, but in verse 10, but those who hate him he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face for those who hate him. God doesn't just uh, hold his promises and unchanging in his promises when it comes to the good things. God doesn't just say, I, I'll hold the truth and I'll hold to what I've promised in the good things of life to the believers. But even in his threatenings to the unbeliever, his promises stand. So when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, we can say, that's true, God has not changed. And if I do that, then I can find myself living in eternity with God in heaven. But we also must look at scriptures that say, "If any name, uh, if your name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation twenty fifteen, you will be cast into the lake of fire." Just as we hold that it is trustworthy and true that God's word is unchanging, in John three sixteen, we must also look at the bad news that God gives to the unbeliever and say God has not changed His thoughts or His plans in that effect as well. His promises. Remain the same. There's one final one I want to look at, and that is his plans. Because of his perfection, his personhood, his promises, because God is who he is, we must believe and understand that God is unchanging in his plans. That his plans stay the same. God has a plan for everything in creation, and it is following the plan that he has for it. Turn for a moment to the book of Isaiah book of Isaiah, if you're in Deuteronomy or in the book of Psalms, you're going to keep moving to your right midway through the Old Testament and find the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46. Listen to what, what is said. You would say, how can God's plans do what he wants them to? How can they be unchanging if we're constantly messing things up? If we're doing things that are against God's uh, will, if you uh, will, how does God's plans remain unchanging? Well, Isaiah 46 is going to share something about that. Isaiah 46 verses nine through 11. Remember the former things, those of long ago, verse nine says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no, there's none like me. I have made known the end from the beginning. From ancient times to what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, there's the promises, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. God's plans are unchanging. I want to look at one more uh, verse. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11. Listen to what God says through the psalmist. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. How do we not uh, mess things up, if you will? The Bible says that the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. This is important. This is important when we see calamities happen in our world, when we see uh, things like terrorism take place and we wonder where God is at. That's when we start asking the question, where is the God of justice? How can God allow this? And that question is very difficult to understand how uh, uh, natural calamities take place. How do we put that into the God of love and also bounce that with the God of justice? It's very difficult to do because God is infinite in his plans. We are finite. But we must understand that nothing happens without God's direct approval. You have to understand that the moment a molecule gets itself out of whack with God, God ceases to be God the smallest new neuron and proton and all those things we learn about in uh, freshman biology, if one of those in all the world or all the galaxies finds itself out of whack with God, God would cease to be God. Everything that he has planned, everything that he has purposed, it falls under the sovereignty of what God is doing in his world and in his creation. So because of these truths... This is a very important doctrine. Because of these truths, this is why we spend a week focused in on the immutability of God. Because it is what connects. If God changes, then he ceases to be God. If God is, is changing, it means he's not perfect. If God is changing, then we won't know who God is because at any given time, he could become something else. If God's promises aren't, uh, are constantly changing, then we would never know whether or not we have eternal life or whether or not we are in good standing with our God. And if God's plans changed, then we would never know if God was in control or not. Now, sadly, even though we have shown, I've shown you where the scripture is clear on this, there are many people that find themselves not believing that. Now you would say, well, those are the cults; those are the uh, the people that don't believe the way we do. But I want to share something with you. There is a movement in the evangelical circle speaking about the open view of God. It is advocated by many different evangelical churches. In fact, one of the leading proponents is a is the pastor of one of the largest churches, one of the largest Baptist General Conference churches churches in America, which finds itself in Minnesota. Now you'd say, well, Baptist General Conference must be a liberal denomination of the Baptist Church. In Minneapolis, uh, one man named Gregory Boyd, a proponent of uh, open theism, the open view of God, has a large Baptist General Conference. Just down the road, we have John Piper, who holds to a traditional theistic view of God, who is a part of a Baptist General Conference Church as well. This is not something that falls in the hands of liberals, if you will, but it falls into uh, the evangelical world as well. Now you say, what is the open view of God? Let me read what Gregory Boyd says in his book, The God of the Possible. He says this, that God is a changing God. He changes his minds and feels emotions. He is a dynamic and personal God interacting with his creation on a moment by moment basis. Now notice, we seem to be okay with that minus the changing of God, that he feels emotions, he's dynamic, he's personal, he interacts with his creation, all that is good. Now here's the problem. He learns from his actions and our actions as well. And he reacts based upon those actions. God is like an infinitely intelligent chess player who anticipates the moves of his creation and tries to respond accordingly. Because he is an ever-dynamic, changing God, he is a God who does not know the future, since to a degree it is dependent upon us free moral agents. God cannot know in advance what I, a free moral agent, will do before I do it. If he did, then man simply would be a robot, living as a pre-programmed, determined, and unchangeable life. Additionally, if all future plans are determined by God, he says, then he is ultimately responsible for all that happens, including evil. The relationship between man and God is a partnership. Now listen to what he says, where man exercises his free will and God adjusts his plan in light of man's choices to accomplish his final purposes. God has willingly chosen this course of events in order to have a meaningful relationship with his creation. He is a God who feels emotion and responds to his creation based on their needs and prayer. The future then is partially open and partially closed as determined by God. Much of the future is settled ahead of time, either by God's predestining will or by existing earthly causes. But God does not know all that has been determined. Part of the future is based on us and is left unsettled. As a result, our God only knows future terms in possibilities, not certainties. As a result, our God is a God who takes risks, who doesn't always get his way. Let me read what I like of what Charles Spurgeon says. God is a mastermind. He has arranged everything in his gigantic intellect long before he did it. And once having settled it, mark you, he never alters it. It will always be the same because he says, my will is done. And the iron hand of destiny marks it down and it is brought to pass just as he said. God is not a God of the possible. God is not a God who sits back and watches little feeble Timberdall and says, I wonder if he's going to Burger King or McDonald's. Let's sit down, Holy Spirit and Jesus, and let's watch where he's going to go as if God is wagering on the choices that I make, saying if he goes to McDonald's, then I will do this in the world. If he goes to Burger King, I will do that. Yes, we have the ability to pick and to choose the things in this world, but God not only knows them, but the Bible says, and it's very difficult to understand that it fulfills the plans that he has for us. Never fall prey to falling into this idea that God changes because when he does, he ceases to be God because he gives up the prerogative of God. If God doesn't know the beginning from the end and he's waiting for us to figure out what that looks like, then he finds himself not as an infinite God, not as an infinite chess player. I think that's kind of a paradox in Boyd's teaching, an infinite chess player because he does not know infinite understandings of all that are transpiring. So where does a guy get that? Where does a guy come up with that kind of teaching? Well, he comes up from it from different scriptures. Write these passages down. I want to be fair to Gregory Boyd and the proponents of open theism. Exodus 32, 9 through 14. Isaiah 38, 1 through 6. Genesis 6, 6. And Jonah three ten. All of these scriptures you can look up later. I'm going to look at two of them very quickly, but all of them give an idea that God in some way has repented. He excuse me, he has relented. He has changed his mind. And the proponents of this teaching say, well, if that's the case, then God's future isn't all laid out because he's still making decisions on what is going to transpire. So let's look at a couple of them. Genesis 6.6. 6. If you look at Genesis 6.6, 6, it just articulates that God is grieved that he made man because of the wickedness that he had seen. In Genesis 6, 6, it says the following. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. Why? Because he had seen in verse five how great man's wickedness was. Now, Boyd says that God made a decision. When he comes to Noah's time, the people get out of line. And God says, you know what? I'm, I'm really sorry I made man. And as a result of me being sorry that I made man, I'm gonna destroy them, that God's plans change. What are we to do with that if we believe that God doesn't change? Well, we know all throughout scripture that God being a infinite God and creator speaks to us who are finite. How does he do it? What God is doing is he's using language to share his great displeasure over man's wickedness, over man's sin. He is grieved like a parent We are grieved when our children fall into sin. We are grieved when our children disobey us. God too was grieved. But did it come by surprise? Absolutely not. The flood and the destruction of humanity in Genesis chapter six, seven, and eight was seen long beforehand and was planned by God before the foundations of the world. What about Jonah? Turn your Bibles to the small book of Jonah in the back of the Old Testament. If you're in Malachi, just go to your left. You'll find a whole bunch of names you can't pronounce. When you get to the book of Micah, you're almost there because Jonah's right before it. Jonah chapter four. um, Jonah chapter, let's see here. Jonah chapter three, verse uh, four. Listen to what happens. We know the story of Jonah. Jonah's told to go to the city of Nineveh, tell the city of Nineveh that God is going to destroy it because of its sin. Jonah doesn't go. He finds himself fleeing from God. God brings forth a large fish. God throws Jonah overboard through a course of actions and things that take place in Jonah's life. He's swallowed by the great fish. The great fish takes him over closer to Nineveh, vomits him out. Jonah's told to go to Nineveh and go to preach. What is he to preach? Verse four, on the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's gonna be destroyed. It's going to fall apart. God's going to bring his judgment upon us, upon Nineveh. But notice what happens in verse 10 of chapter three. When God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Gregory Boyd says, God changed his mind. He changed his mind. God said he was going to destroy them. But man changed and man pursued holiness. And because of that, God said, all right, I didn't see that coming. But in, as a result of that, what I will do is I will relent. I will ease up my destruction. I'll let you live. But well, what are we to do with that? God didn't change his mind. But just as my father used to do, when I was acting in an inappropriate way, my father would say, I swear to you, if I have to get up from this couch, you're not going to be happy. Now, my father threatened me with punishment. Now, my father, being finite, did not know whether I would uh, follow his calling, his threatenings, or not. But God does. Remember, God knows our days. Our days are set before us, the psalmist says. And God knew that the Ninevites would turn. Not only did God know it, but he had purposed it that it would happen. It would be a revival in Nineveh. Now, what do we need to understand about that? God's threatening is true based on a certain situation. Remember back to Grudem's understanding of immutability, that he can uh, have different responses to certain situations. And as a result of that, God says, I'm going to threaten them. Even though I know that they will turn, I will use that threatening to bring them back to myself. God knew that and he was aware of that. So we need to understand in this definition, I know this has been a long first point, but the last two aren't very long at all. So we need to go back to this definition. God is unchanging in his being. We've seen that, his perfections. We've seen that, his purposes, his promises. We also know that though he's unchanging, he does act and he feels emotion. He was grieved. He's happy when we pursue righteousness. He's filled with joy, but he acts and feels differently in his response. To certain situations does that mean that God uh, every time he sees that wickedness is filling up the whole world that he's going to destroy us with a flood no because God has a prerogative to do what he would like when he wants to but now we understand that let's move to the second point and that involves God's covenant everybody awake okay God's covenant you're not going to hear me ask that question very much God's covenant look at what happens when he brings this doctrine of immutability, this is what he says. He says there is a result that takes place. This isn't just some dumb doctrine, my friends. It's important. Listen to what he says. They probably are saying, Okay, Lord, you do not change. Well la di, la di da. But listen to what is said. So you, as a result that I don't change, you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. What is he saying there? He's speaking of his covenant, you descendants of Jacob. It's a reference made to the covenant with Israel. God is saying, I am unchanging in my relationship with you. In chapter 1, he speaks of his faithfulness. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. Now what he's saying is, is that he's saying that I haven't destroyed you as a result of my covenant. Even though you've sinned, even though you've pursued other gods, even though you've broken faith with one another, I haven't given up on you. So we see in God's covenant his faithfulness. God is always faithful. If God is unchanging in all his attributes, faithfulness being one of them, he is unchanging. It's seen in his love, Malachi 1 2. God had loved them since the beginning of this covenant. He had promised an everlasting covenant, and he has kept it, even though they hadn't kept it. Now, notice it involves a special status. They were a special people. Write that down. A special people. His faithfulness involved a special people, a, a special status, and also a sovereign love. Now, notice what happens next. We see God's faithfulness, but we see also Israel's faithlessness. Look at verse 7. It says, because God does not change, they are not destroyed. But notice what Israel's been doing. Ever since the time of your forefathers, in verse 7, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So God is completely faithful and man is completely faithless. Man is doing their own things. Now, why is this faithfulness coming as a result of, first of all, as a disobedience to God's commands? They're disobeying God's commands. Write that underneath that uh, second point. They're disobeying God's commands. Look at verse seven. It says that they have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. But why would they do that? Why would they start turning away from God's decrees? The reason why is because they started to delight in other gods. They started to delight in other gods. Remember chapter two, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Then why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord that he loves by marrying the daughter of, of a foreign God. They were pursuing other gods. There's a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to this, the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is about a man named uh, Hosea, a prophet who has a wife named Gomer. And Gomer is out and she's sleeping around with every guy in town. And uh, Hosea just keeps going time and time out and he goes and gets his adulterous wife and he brings her back, he cleans her up And what would she do? As soon as he cleans her up, she's running back out and and doing the lewd things that she does with all the men of the town. Now, why does God have that in scripture? Because it is a picture of God being the faithful husband and Israel being the unfaithful spouse. And he's saying, even though I'm faithful, every time you go out, you go out and you pursue and prostitute yourselves with other things and I bring you back, I clean you up, and as soon as I do that, you're out again into the city doing the things that you do. God says, I do not change. Now, when I was looking at this text, I thought about it and I said, well, man has changed. And what God is saying is, look at how I haven't changed and notice how you're changing all the time. But James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary said, man hasn't changed. From the beginning of time, man has been the same. Since that fall in the garden, man has found himself faithless before God. So what does immutability mean? Immutability means that God is completely faithful even when you and I are completely faithless. When God is faithful to hold us in the palm of his hand and say that no one can pluck us from our our Father's hand, that we are secure in the salvation that we have, even though we find ourselves in the muck and the garbage of faithlessness in this world, God is faithful and says, devil, you cannot take them. They are a child of mine. Even though we're faithless, he is faithful. So what does it mean? It involves his compassion. Let me close with this. It says, so you sons of Jacob aren't destroyed. Because God is unchanging, my friends, You and I aren't destroyed. If God changed his plans, if he changed his promises, the moment, let's say God in heaven is sitting there right now and says, you know what? I'm tired of this thing called grace and mercy. So we're gonna take it off the shelf. If that was to happen, not one of us, please hear me, would make it out of this building today before God's eternal wrath and punishment would be poured out on us. We would be zapped in a heartbeat. Why? Because we are a faithless people. And if it wasn't for God's unchanging compassion, then we would be in trouble. What does this compassion involve? It involves God's redemption for humanity. If God hadn't destroyed us, then he must have a plan for us. What was his plan for the people of Jacob's descendants? It was to uh, purchase them. It was to buy them and redeem them, to make them his own. What else did that involve? It also involved a return back to God. Notice for a moment. If God says, I do not change, so you're not destroyed, what is our responsibility to this, Malachi? It is to return to God. To not take God's compassion and say it's always going to be there. And as a result of that, we can do what we want, live as we want, talk as we want. No, God's compassion involves not only his patience, but his purchase of us. And God's patience allows for our salvation. It allows us to have a return back to God. So who does this involve, this immutability of God? Let me give you this application. The immutability of God affects, first of all, the broken. Write that down before you close up your Bibles. The broken. Today, if you're here this morning, have never trusted Christ as your Savior, never pursued God because you say, you know what, I've tried to trust people and they have failed me and I'm broken as a result of that, you can turn to God because He is completely faithful, completely compassionate, completely merciful. You can run to Him, you can trust Him with all your life. But it also is a warning for the backslider. For those who have turned away from God, And what God is saying is, yes, I am unchanging. But the time to return is short. And I have a desire to purify you. I have a desire to change you. I have a desire to make you new. I desire to take away the sin and the pain in your life. And if you will return to me, then I will draw near to you. I want to close with this verse and then we're going to pray and close um, this time of the service, second Timothy chapter two, verse thirteen. I want you to meditate on this verse, because this is the verse that holds our place with God. If we are faithless, God will remain faithful. Why? Because he cannot disown himself. Today, if you find yourself faithless, if you find yourself married to a faithless individual, if you find yourself parents of a faithless child, if you find yourself in a world where people break faith all the time and you're tired of that kind of faithlessness, then it is time that you run to Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and what? forever let's pray father god we come before you and lord this is a heavy teaching and lord i know it's hard for our minds to understand but we are taught to teach the whole counsel of your word not just to teach the flashy stuff not just to teach the fun stuff but to teach the stuff that builds our anchor that begins to lay forth the foundation of our understanding of who you are and what you're all about So, Father, I pray that today would not just be a building of our knowledge, but a building of intimacy between us and our Creator, us and our Father in heaven, that as we begin to know Him, we will know who we are. As we see Your faithfulness, we will see our faithlessness. Father, that when we see You are unchangeable, that we will see that we are running and changing all the time. So, Father, I pray that as a result of this teaching today, that we too would pursue faithfulness that we would honor the covenants that we hold, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in the covenants that we make with our mouth, that, Father, we will be a trustworthy people that will bring you glory, honor, and praise. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have not changed. We thank you that your promises endure forever. And as a result of that, you are in control of all things. And as a result of that, that we are not destroyed So Lord, let us praise you for that. Let us worship you because that is the greatest distinction of creator to creature. You are unchanged and we change all the time. So Lord, let us worship you as the creator God, the unfailing God whose faithfulness has been seen throughout all generations. We glory in you today and give you praise. Amen.